Well, last week, we saw that Matthew is framing this section about the Messiah around five fulfillments from the Old Testament. The first two were in chapters 1 and 2, and they dealt specifically with the virgin birth from Isaiah 7, and where Jesus, the place of his birth from Micah 5. And what Matthew is doing is showing us that Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to God's throne. That he indeed is the Messiah who was promised throughout all the Old Testament. Indeed, who was promised from the moment our first parents were cast from the garden when God said that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. What Matthew is doing is framing the birth and the childhood of Jesus, and we'll see the rest of the life of Jesus. He's framing it around the promises from the Old Testament so that we see that he is indeed the rightful king of kings and lord of lords. We also saw last week that these latter three fulfillments in the chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew don't follow what we typically think of when we think of prophecy and fulfillment. Typically, we think of prophecy as being the promise of the virgin birth, which was fulfilled with Mary. Or the promise that the, the Christ child would be born in Bethlehem, and then he was indeed born in Bethlehem. We think of prophecy and fulfillment in terms of this specific thing was prophesied, and here is the specific answer or fulfillment of that prophecy. But what we saw last week, and you have a handout in your, in your bulletin, because I, I thought this was, I wanted to touch on it again this week, that what Matthew is using here is what we call typology. We, we saw last week Graham Cole's definition of typology, and it's the idea that persons, events, and institutions from the Old Testament can, in the plan of God, prefigure a later stage in that plan and provide the conceptuality necessary for understanding the divine intent. Now, this all sounds deep and, um, you know, kind of in-depth Bible study, but I think we've got to understand this because the way the New Testament writers often quote the Old Testament can make us scratch our heads and say, what is going on? So I encourage you, take your bulletin insert home, read over it, look at it, and I think it'll make sense. And, and the big picture I like to use is the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. God put that in place for the people of Israel so that one day they would understand. I mean, you scratch your head sometimes when you read Leviticus and say, what in the world is going on here? But it was so that the people would understand when Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist pointed to him and said, the Lamb of God who takes away of the sin of the world. God had built a whole system to prefigure the work that Christ would come to do. And so it clicked for them. Oh, I get it. That's what all the lamb sacrifices were about in the Old Testament. They were prefiguring and pointing to, they were a type and a shadow of what ultimately Christ would come to do. And so we saw that some of the helpful characteristics of typology from Stephen Wellam and Trent Hunter were that types are patterns rooted in history. They're designed by God and they involve progression towards Christ. 
And so I'll let you go home and and look at the fuller definitions of those. But throughout the Gospel of Matthew, what we see is that Jesus relives or recapitulates the history of Israel from the Old Testament. Israel as a nation at the time of Christ had become a new Egypt that must be fled from. And this is why the Holy Family had to flee from Israel because they had become a new Egypt with a new Pharaoh, Herod. And the Holy Family must escape to be safe from the new slaughter of the innocents. And what we see is that Jesus would come and he would be a new and greater Moses. And he would come and and accomplish a new and a greater exodus. And as we work our way through the story of Jesus that Matthew gives us, we need to remember that these fulfillments happen to real people. It's easy, isn't it, to read on these pages where an angel comes to Joseph in the middle of the night and says, I need you to flee because Herod is seeking to kill the life of this child. And he gets up with Mary and Jesus, who Jesus is under two years old at that time. We just spent a week and a half ago traveling with kids. Traveling with kids, as you know, is not the funnest thing in the world. And we have movies in the car now. Actually, ours was broken. so. Um, but, but, but imagine in the middle of the night, getting up with a small child and his mother and traveling some 90 to 150 miles. So, so it can be easy. I, I, I always like to use my holy imagination when I read the text. And think about what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus as they traveled. Real, the, these fulfillments happen to real people. So just imagine for a moment an angel coming to you at night and saying, I need you to get up and leave because someone is seeking to destroy your child. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? And so now we come to this final section. We looked at the first two fulfillments. We saw that, that, that an angel had, had come to Mary and Joseph and told them to leave because Herod was seeking the life of the child. Because Herod wanted no one, no one to take his throne from him. And so they flee. They go to Egypt. And as we saw last week, Egypt made sense in a lot of ways. Egypt had a huge population of Jewish refugees at the time. And specifically, Alexandria had probably over a million Jews living there at this time. They even had a makeshift temple so the Jews could worship there. Egypt made sense from a practical standpoint. And and, and it's funny, if you know the history of the Bible, this is where you see Matthew showing the irony here. Because the people of God had previously, the the Jewish nation had previously been delivered from Egypt. And now the Holy Family was going to be safe in Egypt. And, And so they go to Egypt and Herod, what we call the slaughter of the innocents. And the mothers cry out like Rachel in the Old Testament because they had lost their sons. And now we come to the third fulfillment in this section, the return trip back from Egypt to Israel in verse 19. It says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought 
the child's life are dead. So we don't know how long they were in Egypt, but what we do know is they went there. Joseph and Mary obeyed, and they went to Egypt, and they stayed there for an extended period of time, and then Herod died. And an angel comes and tells Joseph that he's dead. And don't you know Joseph and Mary breathed a sigh of relief? We can go back home. I mean, if you think about, I mean, this is why Christians, we must always seek to have open doors and open hearts and open lives to those who have been taken from their homes, refugees. What a, what a horrible way to live. And so Joseph and Mary lived as refugees in Egypt for a period of time, and then they hear they can go back home. And so don't you know, they said, let's go home. Joseph and Mary uprooted their lives to keep this child safe. And so Joseph did what we've been accustomed to seeing him do in the Gospel of Matthew. He obeyed. The angel came to him and said, it's safe to go home. Go back to Israel. And they start going back. He obeys. Joseph obeys and they went back to Israel. But we hear, not so fast. Not so fast. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And they rose and took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. But, the text says, but... When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So they begin to make their way back to Israel, and they're going to go to Judea, but not so fast. Herod's son is now reigning in his place. Archelaus was reigning, it says, and they were afraid to go there. See, after Herod died, what he did was he divided his kingdom amongst several of his sons. And Archelaus, being the oldest, and he got to rule over Judea. Now, what we find out is there was a lot of infighting. If you've ever seen some family-owned companies, sometimes this happens, right? When the patriarch and the matriarch dies, and then it's just the kids, sometimes it all goes haywire. But they hear Archelaus is reigning, and they're afraid. Because what we know from history is that Archelaus wasn't much better than his father. And his father was a crazy, power-hungry tyrant, as we saw last week, who had one of his wives killed and several of his kids killed because he thought they were trying to usurp his throne. And Archelaus wasn't much better. He was hated by the Jews because he ruled over them. He ruled over them for Rome in a similar way to his father, which was heavy-handed. He had many Jews massacred, and they hated him. And so the Jewish leadership complained to Rome. And in fact, he was such a bad leader that he was later banished by Caesar Augustus. That's how bad he was. And if we know anything about the history of Rome, they often ruled with a heavy hand. And so you've got to be pretty bad to be banished by Caesar Augustus. But so they're warned in a dream not to go back to where Archelaus is ruling and reigning, but to go to the district of Galilee and, and in the district of Galilee to a town called Nazareth. It's a small little village. 
a very tiny place. And we actually learned from the Gospel of Luke that this was probably Mary, at least Mary, and probably Joseph's hometown. Because here's what Luke chapter 1 says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph from the house of David. And this virgin's name was Mary. And so, interestingly enough, an angel tells them to go back to their hometown. What a blessing in a lot of ways. But as we'll see, also a curse in some others. And Matthew tells us, Matthew the narrator tells us that they were told to go to Nazareth so that what the prophet said might be fulfilled. That he would be a Nazarene. Now, this is where if you do a little Bible study, you got to step back. Because notice what Matthew says here in the text. Matthew doesn't say, as he's previously said, to fulfill what this prophet said, pointing to Isaiah, or what this prophet said, pointing to Micah, or what this prophet said, pointing to Jeremiah. He gave us specific, a specific one prophet who gave us what we've seen previously in the four fulfillments. But here, he gives us a general, they are told to move here because this is what the prophets, plural, spoke about. Now, here's where it gets, you start scratching your head. You can search high and low in the Old Testament, and you will not find a single verse that says the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. You, You can search it. You won't find it. It's not there. So what is Matthew doing? If Matthew is saying this fulfills what the prophets have said, what is he doing? Here's what he's doing. The prophets had said a lot of things about the Messiah. And one specifically is that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would be lowly and come from a lowly place. And so while the Old Testament doesn't specifically say that Jesus or the Messiah would be from Nazareth specifically, it did say it generally. Listen to what Isaiah 11.1 says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This verse compares the Messiah to a, a little old branch. That would one day grow into a great tree that would bless the nations. And there are many other what they call branch prophecies. And what's interesting is there's maybe scholars think there's a word play here because the word branch in Hebrew sounds very much like the word Nazareth. And so I think there's a word play going on. And there are several branch prophecies to show that the Messiah would be lowly and come. This is why Jesus confused everyone in his day, even his disciples, because they expected the Messiah to come in a way where he would do away with Rome and he would set up his eternal kingdom on earth at that time. But what he did was he came to serve and he came lowly. And he came to wash feet. He came in a very lowly manner. And and Isaiah 53 tells us this. For he grew up 
before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah there is talking about the crucifixion. But he talks a little bit about how Jesus would grow up in a lowly manner. And so when Matthew says this was to fulfill what the prophet said, I think what he's doing is saying that the Messiah would come in a lowly manner. And so if you know anything about Nazareth at the time, it was a no-name town. We might even go so far as to call it a hick town, right? We all have towns like that. Wherever you grew up, you had those towns. You got your names for them. I won't ask for them around here because we don't want to offend anybody who may come from those towns. But, right, we have those towns. I know the nicknames I hear people say about Ashford. I know the nicknames people say about other towns. Right? I mean, you know. This was Nazareth. This is Nazareth. It was a hick town. And and, and you know how we know that? In John chapter 1. Listen to this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He had traveled. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Listen to what Nathanael said. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Right? Don't we have those towns? Right? Can anything good come from there? This is Nazareth. This is where Jesus, the Messiah, would grow up in a no-name town. And here we are in Willington, Connecticut, still talking about this no-name town. Not because of the town, but because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords chose to come as a servant and chose to come in a lowly way and to humble himself and come to a little hick town and grow up in a little village and work a blue-collar job with his adopted father, Joseph. Do you see how amazing God's story is? Here we are still talking about Nazareth, not because of the town, but because of who came from this town. And this was all to fulfill what the prophets said, that the Messiah would come in a lowly manner, That's what Matthew is doing here. And so as we close today, two things I want us to think about as we think about this section of Scripture. Two things. One, I want us to see Joseph here. Joseph gives us a model for sacrificial, obedient faith. Joseph shows us what sacrificial, obedient faith looks like. Notice that Several angels came as messengers from God to Joseph. It came in chapter 1, verse 24, for him to wed Mary. He had found out she was pregnant. The child wasn't his. The angel tells him, it's okay. She conceived this child by the Holy Spirit. I want you to marry her. And what did he do? He married her. An angel comes again in the middle of the night and tells him to move his family to Egypt. And what does Joseph do? He leaves at night. He's immediately obedient. And then the angel comes and says, move back to Israel. And what does Joseph do? He's obedient. And he moves his family back to Israel. And then an angel says, hang on a second. Don't go back to Judea. I want you to go to Galilee and Nazareth. 
And what does he do? He's obedient. Joseph, each time Joseph obeyed God, he risked his own safety and reputation, but he cared more about his own well-being he, he, he cared, or I, I should say that, he cared less about his own well-being and more about obedience to God. He is a model for us. Joseph, as he chose to marry, or I'll say, as he chose to wed Mary, I was going to say marry Mary, but that could be confusing. As he chose to wed Mary, he gave up his own safety. When this child was born, immediately Herod heard of it, and this was a marked family. He gave up his own safety to be obedient to God. You know what else Joseph gave up? He gave up his own reputation to follow what God called him to do. Forever, now I want you to hear me, forever Joseph would have been that guy who married that gal who got pregnant under suspicious circumstances. Now, lest you think I'm reading anything into the text, hear this. In John chapter 8, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, and they said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Do you hear what they said to Jesus? There was rumors that he was born out of sexual immorality. Joseph gave up his reputation. He and Mary did. Their reputation. I mean, don't you know there was chatter all the time behind their backs? Oh, there's Joseph with that son who's not really his son. He doesn't even really look like him. He gave up his reputation in obedience to God. Joseph is a model for us of what sacrificial obedience looks like. You see, whenever and wherever Jesus Christ shows up, there will be opposition. Because we all have are sitting on the throne of our lives and we don't like to give up kingship to anyone else. And we see this with Herod. We see he actually didn't want to give up his kingship. But whenever Jesus shows up, he demands obedience and worship because he's the king. He's the rightful heir. He's the rightful ruler. And he demands that from us. And he calls us and he tells us that, that life will flourish under his reign and his rule. And our life will flourish as we obey him. Wherever he shows up, there's opposition. And so Joseph is a model for us. And, and, and let me say this. For men and women, Joseph is a model of obedience. But I want to I take a little sidetrack for a minute. What's interesting, and I love this about the Bible, the Gospel of Luke focuses in on Mary the mother of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, the focus has been on Joseph. So I want to focus here for the dads for just a minute. We are called to sacrificially love and lead our families in obedience to Christ, dads. And let me encourage you with this today. Joseph is a model for us. He gave up reputation. 
He gave up a life of ease so that he could have his family be obedient to Christ. It's a model for us, dads. And, and, and maybe you're here today and, and you say, well, my, my kids are, are, are gone. And maybe you're a grandparent and, and grandfathers, you have an opportunity with your grandchildren. Or, or to be a father figure to one of the young folks in this church. It doesn't matter what stage of life you are in. You can be a father figure to someone. And so dads, hear me. We live in a culture that is hostile to Christ and his word. And we need to model for our children what it looks like to follow Christ even when the going gets tough. And that may mean we say yes to some things and no to other things. It may mean we say no to some things and it tarnishes our reputation and people wonder, well, why aren't you doing this? It, it, it may mean saying, hey, to our kids, when they're not happy about it, hey, guys, I love you, but we're not playing soccer on Sunday mornings. We go to church. It, 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 whatever the situation may be. But Joseph is a model for us. And again, maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Nate, I don't even know where to start. Let me give you a start, an easy start. Gather your kids or your child around you every day as much as possible. Read a chapter of the Bible and pray together. It's as simple as that. Start that way. Start with the Gospel of Matthew. Read a chapter and say, guys, let's pray. If you don't know what to pray, Jesus gave us the best prayer we could ever pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer with your children. Just begin to take those steps. Because, guys, I, I, I was reminded again of it because I heard a... Um, a new, um, there's a new cartoon out that uh, some people are really excited about, and, and the guy who created it is an Australian, and, and his goal in the cartoon, I see some of you, you probably heard the news story, we actually watched an episode of it, it's, it's a show called Bluey, and, and, and the guy said, we're trying to create a cartoon with parents, both parents who are engaged, but especially fathers, because if you watch most stuff on TV, fathers are doofuses aren't they? <laughs> they just are. But this guy's saying, hey, me and my friends, he's a young dad in his 30s. He's like, we're not perfect, but we're trying to be there for our kids. We know how to change diapers. We know how to do some of those things. But, but we want to be a good dad for our kids. And so as we look at Joseph and as Matthew focuses in on Joseph, I just want to encourage you dads be there for your kids. Let them see what it looks like to follow Christ. And maybe you're just beginning in that walk. Guess what? They can begin right there with you. And so if you need any help, any resources, any encouragement, come see me because I got a ton of them that can help. And, and, and again, the reason, if we step back, and again, Joseph's a model for all of us, but dads especially, let's lead our families well. But the reason Joseph could obey the way he did, this is my second point in closing. The reason he could obey God the way he did is because he trusted God. He had faith and confidence in God's unwavering plan. And so that's the second thing I want you to see from this section. And it's huge. And you hear me say it all the time. But God's plan will come to fruition. God's will will be done. You think about it, this section, 
Everything is against the Christ child. Everything is against Jesus in this section. And God will bring about the fulfillment of all his promises. We see this here in this section. The great lengths God went to to protect the Messiah. I mean, you think of all the things that were up against Jesus in this. You look at his, we looked at his genealogy, that crooked family tree. <laughs> crooked in a couple different senses. A lot of shady characters in that genealogy of the Messiah. You, you think about he was up against the reality of a virgin mother. God miraculously steps in and she conceives. Joseph, he was up against Joseph, almost divorced Mary because of this. And what happens? God intervenes. You have the wicked ruler intent on destroying the Christ child. And what does God do? He intervenes. He's involved in the history of mankind. God's plans will come about no matter what roadblock Satan threw up against the Christ child. No matter how he tried to prevent and to end the life of Jesus, he couldn't because God's plan will not be thwarted. This is how Joseph was able to obey because he trusted that God was sovereign and in control. And this should tell you something about God. Two things. That he's trustworthy. He keeps his promises. You and I, we break them often, don't we? God doesn't. God keeps his promises and he's sovereign. He's got the power to keep his promises. See, sometimes I make promises to my kids and I get sick. I can't fulfill those promises. Or something comes up. That doesn't happen with God. He makes promises and he's sovereign and can keep them. And so here's the thing. Step back a minute. God is not only doing this with Jesus in the cry, when he was a child. All of history is his. And he will bring it to its determined end. But even more than that, let, let, let's go beyond just the, the generic. Because, I mean, we're at church here. We like to say things like, hey, God's in control of history, right? We say it because it's true. But that can be too generic. So... Let's go a little deeper. Even more so, your life is not an accident. You being here this morning is not an accident. God wanted you here to hear these words. God has sovereignly worked to bring you here today so that you can hear that he keeps his promises, that he's got the power to keep his promises. And, and, and the good part is God's not just all-powerful. He's all loving and all gracious and all good. So he's got the power, but, but he's got grace. And every single one of his promises will come true. And so hear these words from Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joseph and Mary would have had this verse memorized. They probably would have been reciting it to themselves as they were traveling in the middle of the night to Egypt. He will not leave us and he will not forsake us. He will not leave us and he will not forsake us. You think about your life and the messes that happen around it. Joseph and Mary, they didn't see behind the curtain either. They lived it. They lived it. In the midst of it, they lived it and believed it. And we're called to do the same. And we've got good reason because we see what God does here. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. I've used the imagery here of 
often a tapestry. If you look at the back of it, it's a train wreck. It's a mess. And then you see it when it's done and you see the other side of it. That's like our life. It often seems so messy from our own sin, from sin done to us. From... But one day we will stand before God and we will see the tapestry of our life and it will make sense. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the good news. And that is what we learn from this passage, that God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray.